bottom until we're in a shooting war with China. And I think we're still some way away from that. Uh, and indeed, I don't think we need to get to that point. Welcome to Macro Matters with Millennium Global, the podcast where we tackle the big macroeconomic themes of the day and discuss what it means for your portfolio. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Nigel Inkster, a former director of MI6, the British Secret Intelligence Service, where he served for over 30 years. A graduate of Oxford University, he's also served as a director and senior advisor at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, focusing on issues such as military cybersecurity with China and Russia. And he's also published books and dossiers on related topics. So we very much look forward to taking advantage of his unique perspective to discuss some of the most pressing geopolitical issues facing our world today, of which there are several. At Millennium Global, we have a keen focus on all macro issues, financial, economic, and of course, geopolitical. Uh, as we know, geopolitical issues have serious implications for investment portfolios, so we hope that you find today's discussion enlightening. We arguably live in a time of the greatest geopolitical uncertainty since the end of the Cold War in 1989, so it really is a fascinating time to be having this conversation with Nigel and to be able to glean insights from his uh, long career in military intelligence. Here to tackle some of these issues with Nigel is Mark Astley, Millennium Global's co-CEO. Mark and Nigel, thank you both so much for joining us today, and I will hand it over to Mark to dive into our first topic. Thank you, Abby, and thank you very much indeed, Nigel, for joining us today. Uh, what I suggest we do is perhaps have a world tour of some of the most pressing and important issues in geopolitics around the world, of which there are so many. And perhaps you can start with the, perhaps the big daddy of them all, which is US-China relations. Um, and the question around whether there may even be a scope for detente in a relationship which has deteriorated so dramatically in recent years. For context, of course, we're now 51 years since Nixon's visit to Chairman Mao's China, perhaps the most successful diplomatic mission in modern history. But in recent years, perhaps the last 10 under Xi Jinping, that relationship has deteriorated and perhaps in an accelerating fashion in recent years. Um, and the question then remains, have we hit bottom yet? And is there any prospects for improvement in the medium term? So with that context, what are your thoughts about that key pivotal relationship? Well, to answer your last question first, Mark, uh, we haven't hit bottom until we're in a shooting war with China. Um, and I think we're still some way away from that. Uh, and indeed, I don't think we need to get to that point. Um, a lot of my colleagues have shown themselves very resistant to talking about a Cold War with China, uh, with the West. Um, but I think that actually Cold War is, is not a bad term to char characterize where we are, nor is it necessarily a bad thing. You know, the original Cold War uh, did create a certain amount of collateral damage around the world proxy wars in various um, locations, um, but it never involved um, a shooting war between the principal antagonists, and it ended up be, uh, being resolved peacefully. So if we were to have a rerun of that scenario, I don't think we'd be doing too badly. 
But at the moment, I have to say, I think the prospects for any kind of meaningful rapprochement are low bordering on non-existent. And I think the reason for this is that China, that Xi Jinping um, has decided that the United States is determined to contain, surround, and suppress China, and any accommodation he tries to make with the United States will limit his own freedom of maneuver. I think it's important to understand that Xi Jinping is an old man in a hurry. He has a vision for China that he wants to implement, but he's also aware of a lot of headwinds that could potentially prevent him from getting there. And of course, the communist system has shown itself to be remarkably effective in many ways, certainly in terms of achieving rapid economic development in China, but it is also inherently fragile. It it doesn't have much um, scope for adaptation or coping with um, events that occur outside their intellectual and, and, and policy framework. So the free world is becoming an increasing problem for China. And in the last three years, we've seen the United States actually moving to pile quite a lot of pressure on China from a geopolitical perspective, developing closer relations with Taiwan, spinning up uh, regional um, alliances and partnerships, things like quad arrangement um, between India, Japan, uh, Australia, and the US, and the AUKUS arrangement between the UK, Australia, and the US on the provision of not just nuclear submarines for Australia, but also a whole suite of advanced military technology capabilities. We've seen Japan starting to move away from um, a peace constitution to develop uh, counter-strike capabilities, increase uh, the defense budget. Uh, a lot of things are happening under uh, the US current US administration that China's not happy with. And that's before we get to the technology war um, that began with Donald Trump in 2018, but was very substantially reinforced in on October the 7th last year when the United States announced very severe limitations on the sale of advanced semiconductors and the machinery for making them and has invoked its um, uh, global leverage to prevent major players like the Netherlands, like Japan, from um, supplying the equipment that the United States is is not prepared to. So there's a lot going on here that China's not happy with. And um, the US posture in the Indo-Pacific um, is characterized one as one of integrated deterrence. The idea is that there's so much uh, military activity going on as to convince China that any move against Taiwan, I know we're coming to that, um, would uh, be counterproductive. But of course, from China's perspective, that simply looks like um, an escalating threat, an escalating challenge to which they have to respond. So, and the two sides at the moment are talking past each other. We saw at the beginning of the year, um, Secretary of State Blinken planning to 
uh, undertake a visit to, to Beijing to try to restart the relationship. And that was derailed by the discovery of a Chinese surveillance balloon over North America. And that has cast a very long shadow. There have been exchanges, public exchanges, which um, did not go well. In his State of the Union address, Joe Biden um, criticized Xi Jinping by name, which went down very, very badly in Beijing. And uh, Xi Jinping, for the first time at the recent uh, twin sessions of China's uh, parliament, talked directly about the United States as being engaged in a policy of containment, encirclement, and suppression of China. So this is you know, where relations have got to. And as I said, I think the two sides are talking past each other. They're not listening to each other. They're e e either unwilling or unable to take account of each other's sensitivities. Um, you know, the United States is, and, and, and there are fundamentally very different approaches. China, in terms of international relations, will always try to reach some kind of overarching agreement in principle um, with a country about what the relationship would will should be before getting into the nitty gritty of specific issues. The United States simply wants to engage China on particular issues without committing itself to anything in terms of an overarching framework. So, you know, there, there is a fundamental incompatibility of approach here. And it's the same thing with uh, crisis communications, with all the military activity that's going on in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, etc. The United States is desperate to get some kind of functioning crisis communications up with um, Beijing, but China doesn't want to have them. Um, because think about it, you know, there's the Chinese system, nothing can be done until the Politburo has met and, uh, met and decided. So woe betide even the most senior military officer who picks up the telephone, does something which then turns out to be not what the Politburo wanted. Nobody wants to do that. So you know, we're, 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 we're in, a, in a very difficult situation here. And it goes back to the point I, you know, I, that I, I made at the beginning. I think Xi Jinping has concluded that there is really no point in trying to engage with America. It's got to that stage. And this is going to be very, it's going to be very difficult to, to, get, to get back from that. Well, let's extend the debate a little bit then and touch upon perhaps the most important uh, aspect of all, which is your reference to China-Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It seems that um, Xi Jinping has been very clear about the, the pursuit of uh, reunification, which is the ultimate goal, albeit traditionally China has been very patient about many of these things. But in this case, uh, arguably, it would have to be achieved within Xi's reign, however long it may be. And the question then is, would it be militarily or non-militarily? Uh, is there some sort of time frame? Mm -hmm. And what can the West do about that to prevent it? And how far indeed will they go if uh, China is absolutely intent on, on achieving their aim? So there's a number of dimensions to that, but it is very critical for the world going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the Rhodium Group recently um, produced a piece of research which uh, indicated that if there were to be conflict in the Taiwan Strait, there would be di a direct and immediate hit to the global economy of the order of $2 trillion. Um, so you know, and that, that really is just you know the, the, the starting price, so to speak. 
the resultant disruption of global supply chains and global um, sea traffic uh, would be enormous. That's about 2% of global GDP or thereabouts. To start with, absolutely, yes. And, and, and then the kind of slowdown effect from all of that um, w- w- would make matters uh, much worse. So where, where, where do things stand on this? I think China's um, basic point has been that U.S. Um, policy of greater engagement with Taiwan that began um, during the Trump administration has, as they put it, hollowed out the one China policy. Um, and you know, they, they do have a point. The, the US has done a lot um, in relation to Taiwan uh, in recent years, an almost endless succession of congressional uh, delegations to the island, relatively senior uh, officials visiting greatly increased arms sales in recent years. Um, And Joe Biden has four times said publicly that the United States would intervene if China were to attack Taiwan. Although on every occasion, his officials have walked that back. Um, The fact that the president has said this four times is, is not inconsequential, I think. So, you know, there's a lot there for China to to worry about. Um, And of course, an additional complication is that China, sorry, that uh, Taiwan is the source of about 50% of the world's semiconductors. And when we look at the most advanced production node, that goes up to around 92%. You know, the TSMC foundries in Taiwan are a vital global resource. Um, And if for any reason uh, they stopped producing, we would all notice very quickly. So, so there, you know, the, 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 uh, more, you know, and moreover in geopolitical terms, if China were to be able to occupy Taiwan, that would essentially tear up the US uh, Indo-Pacific strategy of maintaining dominance Um, out out to the first island chain, it would fundamentally cause a fundamental revision of relations between countries like Japan and South Korea with the United States. It wouldn't mean that the United States would no longer be a, a superpower, but it would be a different and diminished superpower from where it is now. So this is all very consequential. Um, what does China want to do? Well, I think the Chinese leadership are well aware of the downside of uh, a military assault on Taiwan. It's a difficult thing to do. The the Americans thought about doing it in World War II, um, but decided against on the grounds that it would require more resources than were needed for the Normandy landings. You know, the the, the sea conditions, the geography, you know, everything militates uh, against doing it. But at the same time, uh, China's uh, military, the People's Liberation Army, have been working assiduously to develop the capabilities that they might need if they had to do this. And of course, Taiwan has been at the center of this dramatic military modernization that China has undertaken since the 1990s. Um, you know, the, 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 you know this, this is the kind of fulcrum around which uh, it it has all um, developed. Uh, Until that point, China 
China's military was a, a sort of rather large, lumpen, low-tech, land-based force that couldn't project power beyond its borders, not, not a meaningful scale. And it's now developed into a sophisticated all-armed service, albeit still with some way to go when it comes to conducting what we would regard in the West as joint, um, fully joint operations, but they're getting there. Um, and um, Taiwan, as I said, has been the basis on which they've been able to do this. Um, you know, the, the, the ability to develop what the United States, not the Chinese, call anti-access area denial capabilities. In other words, enough firepower to keep the USA and any allies out of theater long enough for the PLA to achieve their objective of occupying Taiwan. But China would rather do it peacefully, and uh, they, they, they keep on saying that uh, this, this is their um, objective, and notwithstanding the fact that um, young Taiwanese in particular are becoming progressively more alienated by the increasing authoritarianism of the current regime in Beijing, um, China does see that it has still some cards to play in this area. There is going to be a presidential election in Taiwan in January next year, January 2024. Um, and it is not totally unimaginable, unlikely, I would say, but not totally unimaginable that Taiwan might end up being ruled by somebody who is more amenable to re-engaging in dialogue with China than the current regime is. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't put the probability very high, but it's not zero. Um, the other thing, of course, is that next year there is going to be a presidential election in the United States, and it is by no means a foregone conclusion that the Democrats will be returned to office. Um, and if it were to be a rerun of Donald Trump, um, then... Well, it's anybody's guess because Trump is so unpredictable uh, that it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that he might decide, you know, we're gonna, what the hell are we going to let Taiwan go? Um, so so um, China is looking at this and thinking, we've still got time. You know, we, we, you know, they, they certainly, I mean, it, it's a curious uh, situation with the Chinese leadership. As committed Marxist-Leninists, and, and hence, you know, um, believers in historical determinism, they have to believe that they have understood the currents of history and that the tide is flowing in their direction. They have to believe that. At the same time, they're, of course, very anxious uh, about the possibility that things may not turn out uh, the way that they, they wish, which is why I said earlier, uh, we're talking about Xi Jinping as an old man in a hurry who wants to get this done while the window of opportunity still is open. Um, so that, that, that's where we are at the moment. Uh, China, I think, will continue what it's doing at the moment, which is progressive ratcheting up of so-called gray zone operations against Taiwan, uh, cyber attacks. So the Taiwanese are actually getting quite good at spotting and defending against these. Um, they are going to use selective uh, economic pressure, import bans and the like. 
Um, and, but at the same time, uh, the, their, their message will be, we've got nothing against the Taiwanese people. It's just these dangerous separatist elements that we have an issue with. Would you subscribe to the orthodoxy that the Russia-Ukraine war puts back the timing, if there was one or is one, around any potential China invasion of Taiwan? No, uh, I don't think uh, I don't think that is a factor. Certainly, the Chinese will be looking very hard at the lessons that can be learned from uh, the Ukraine conflict, particularly perhaps less on the battlefield, because we would be talking about a very different battlefield. In, in these circumstances, but looking at things like, for example, economic sanctions, um, you, um, cyber activity by uh, Western uh, allies and, and partners of Taiwan, and also activities by what one might term cyber vigilantes, which have been a significant uh, uh, factor in, in the Ukraine conflict. Um, I, I've been involved in discussions with, with Chinese counterparts on, on some of these things. And you know, they are clearly very worried uh, about the likelihood that um, the West will collectively deploy its very significant cyber capabilities against China in the event that a conflict does break out. Can we just change gears? Same with China for one last moment around uh, the economic sphere. Mm -hmm. And to what extent do you believe that the chip war, which had a quantum leap, as you mentioned, with the October 7th pronouncement from the Biden White House, may expand in a way where perhaps European, either from the EU or elsewhere in Europe, uh, will cut supply chains and decouple much more materially which will have both growth and inflation consequences for the global economy going forward, or whether you think we've reached the high watermark of uh, this decoupling given that US action? I don't think we're anywhere near the high watermark yet. We're getting, we're, we're moving in that direction, but there is definitely more to come. It's, you know, it's, I think, generally well known that the White House is in the process of preparing further um, sanctions um, against China, focusing particularly on their ability to develop uh, artificial intelligence. Um, they've already done quite a lot to constrain China's ability in, in, in this area by uh, banning companies like NVIDIA, you know, US companies from, from selling um, GPUs with a, a speed um, of or in excess of 600 uh, uh, megabits per second. Um, so, you know, that, that, that effect, what that effectively does is significantly slow down uh, China's ability to develop lang large language models like uh, um, ChatGPT. You know, they're working on it still and they still have G uh, GPUs, but, but not um, the most state of the art uh, and fastest ones. Um, there, is, there is more to come here. Um, and in terms of the bans that already exist, the United States has been successful in persuading the Dutch government to impose constraints on um, the sale of their national champion, ASML, which provides the most advanced um, ultra, extreme ultraviolet lithography equipment 
uh, to China that, that China needs and simply cannot produce for itself. So you know, we, we, we've got the Dutch um, lined up here, the, the Japanese also lined up. Um, what, what, what Europe has to offer is, is more in the way of niche capabilities. And, and these are niche capabilities that they're not uh, selling to China much anyway. I mean, the TSMC foundries in Taiwan are reliant not just on these fantastically complex and hugely expensive extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography machines, um, but they're also heavily dependent on a massively complex global supply chain of chemicals refined to high levels of purity, mirrors, lenses, pipes, valves, all machined to the highest um, levels of tolerance. And all these things come, guess what, from uh, different country, you know, countries in Europe, Switzerland, Germany, you know, the Netherlands, and, and of course, Japan. Um, I mean, I think, I think Europe is in a very difficult position at the moment in, in, in all of this. And uh, of course, China is pushing hard um, to persuade the the EU to exercise, as they call it, strategic autonomy, which is you know, get out from under the US umbrella um, and, and failing to realize that actually um, at the moment, particularly with the Ukraine playing out, um, Europe by and large are still uh, quite happy to remain uh, under the US security umbrella, notwithstanding the fact that amongst European elites, there is a lot of rather ill-thought-out anti-Americanism uh, in evidence. There's, there's no doubt about that. And it's certainly um, very much in evidence around the Charlemagne and Bellemont buildings in Brussels. Um, but the simple fact is that uh, Europe doesn't really have anywhere else to go. Um, how, that said, I think there are countries in Europe, and I think Germany is the obvious case in point, that they are so their economy is so heavily integrated with that of China that um, if they were to undertake a full decoupling with China, we'd see something akin to what happened in the United States in the early 2000s in terms of deindustrialization. It does rather look as though the risks from a geopolitical point of view are all skewed to the downside in the context of these aspects impacting global growth and, and Chinese growth in particular. Yeah. But let's stay with the region just for a moment and just touch upon North Korea, which comes in and out of the news for reasons which are obvious. Yes. And perhaps ask the question, you know, how do we frame this issue? Do we look at it in the context of the nuclear program's aim that the North Koreans have is to ensure their own self-protection because of their paranoia with the rest of the world? Or are they actually developing a capability which is a genuine external threat which we should be worried about? Yeah. Uh, yes, North Korea, the gift that keeps on giving. And the answer to your question is both, actually. Uh, the, the, the key driver for this nuclear program is the survival of a regime whose vulnerability the leadership are acutely aware of. You know, they, they know goddamn well that they're skating on very thin ice here, um, that their population are increasingly aware that, no, they don't live in the world's perfect paradise that there are countries where you can buy a bar of chocolate whenever you want, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and as with any authoritarian regime, the best way to ensure their survival is to conjure up the hostile other. And that hostile other is, of course, um, South Korea, uh, the United States, uh, and, and the West. 
So, you know, it, 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 in, in that sense, it's a kind of no-brainer. And then the message to the population becomes, you know, um, only we can save you, and this is the only way we can do it. And if, you know, you have to eat grass and leaves in order you know, that we can build these bombs and missiles, then, you know, that's the way it's going to have to be. But of course, it is um, an external threat, uh, because precisely because the regime is so paranoid, uh, so afraid for its own survival, that it would be very easy to see how a miscalculation might occur and uh, trigger um, something um, you know, hugely undesirable. And I'm not sure that there is any country on Earth, and that includes China, that would be able to prevent them if this, uh, this were to happen. I mean, you know, it, it, it's generally assumed that China does have some leverage over North Korea. But over the course of my time, I've talked to a lot of Chinese about North Korea, and they mostly throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, for Christ's sake, what can you do with these people? <laughs> so what's your uh, assessment of the degree of the elevation of this threat or the probability that this is something which will grow and, and become very meaningful as opposed to a, a just a sort of left-wing issue, a uh, left-wing distribution? No, I think it's one of these classic uh, low probability, high impact situations that, 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 that uh, we, we, we find um, you know, scattered around the world, um, it's 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 not obvious that uh, the, the North, you know, is about to uh, detonate a nuclear weapon uh, anytime soon. Uh, but as I said, you know, the, the the paranoia and insecurity is such that it would uh, not be difficult to envisage circumstances in which they would misread the situation, panic, and do something silly. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, switch to uh, to Europe and look at the uh, the conflagration in Russia Ukraine. We're now speaking at a time where that conflict has gone for fifteen months. Mm. Uh, we're hearing the, the potential for a spring offensive by the Ukrainian army. We're seeing oddities like drones being shot down over the Kremlin mm. and uh, puzzlement in Washington about exactly where that came from and what the, what the purpose of that was. And then the bluster coming out of uh, Moscow uh, in terms of its continuing uh, counter. Um, what's your assessment of where we are? And is this something we're going to have to live with for another three years? Or is there any prospect of an intervention or even exhaustion mm. from either of the two sides that there may be a resolution unexpectedly this year? Well, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I could retire to my own private island. Um, I don't think anybody uh, you know, really, really can say, but I think on a balance of probabilities, the likelihood is that this is going to drag on for some time. You know, the Ukrainians are planning a spring offensive. Um, you know, the Russians have been digging in for that spring offensive. There's been some evidence most recently of dissension within the ranks with this extraordinary video by Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, um, speaking, you know, you know um, an expletive-laden denunciation of the Kremlin, the defense ministry, and the Russian army, and saying now that he's going to withdraw his forces from Bakhmut, which they've been you know, fighting in for, well, since forever, really. Um, and that, that, symbolically, I think that's quite uh, quite interesting, quite uh, indicative. Uh, at the same time, of course, we we, we know that while the U Ukraine has imposed significant attrition on Russia's armed forces, both in terms of manpower and materiel, uh, Ukraine itself has suffered a similar high level of attrition. 
and it is open to debate whether the new weaponry that they are asking uh, are asking for from uh, partners and allies will arrive in sufficient quantities soon enough to turn the tide. My sense is that, um, and there's certainly, I don't think at the, uh, at the moment either party is remotely interested in negotiation, uh, certainly not uh, Vladimir Putin, um, because I think he looks at this in terms of, well, I haven't lost this yet. You know, Russia's a big country, defense in depth. We've got a lot more people. We can take the pain uh, for as long as uh, we need to take it. And he is probably not wrong in that in that assessment. So I think it's very, very, very hard to see how um, we, we get a quick resolution. I think it is interesting that Xi Jinping, after... Um, a lot of procrastination has finally had what looks like a substantive discussion with President Zelensky and seems to be positioning itself as a possible broker of uh, an agreement in due course. Um, but I think more for selfish reasons and because they partic you know, they're particularly concerned to see the conflict come to an end. I mean, obviously, it doesn't suit China that this conflict has dragged on without a, a resolution and had the unintended consequence of not weakening but strengthening NATO um, and Western resolve. At the same time, they can't help wondering how durable Western resolve will actually prove to be if the conflict is prolonged for some time, and you, one can see um, interesting, you know, cracks appearing. I mean, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about Ukraine is the way it has led to a kind of redistribution of power within Europe, away from the traditional power centres of France and Germany, towards you know Poland, the Nordics, the Baltics, and the Brits. You know, the, the, these are the countries that are driving. Uh, European policy towards Ukraine more consequentially and effectively than either France or Germany. Well, let's move uh, to the EU then in that context and taking it away from the sort of military realm. Mm -hmm. uh, as you imply, things have changed in the context of uh, relations within the EU bloc. Uh, certainly, Franco German relationship has hit a new low, arguably, and the tensions with the EU. Um, uh, command the control with places like Hungary and, and Poland are also at a very low ebb. Mm. Um, I mean, how do you assess the prospects there in terms of the EU becoming more cohesive or even breaking apart at some stage, uh, given those messes? Yeah, well, I think it's quite interesting. Uh, the, the EU has um, undergone a kind of moment of epiphany and being compelled to understand that you can't just get where you want to be using soft power, that there needs to be a significant hard power component as well. And of course, the the, um, the problem with that is that Europe, pers that the EU as an institution does not have, cannot exercise that hard, that hard power. It can only do through, so through member states. Um, and you know, um, it, it is possible for the EU to develop strategies which member states can adhere to and implement. But of course, you know, they don't have the resources to to do it themselves. At the same time, I think you know, the you, you, I think Europe is 
um, undergoing a kind of um, long dark night of the soul at the moment, a recognition that uh, the world is changing rather faster than they had anticipated and not necessarily um, to their uh, advantage. They are, they, they are feeling caught between the behemoths of the United States um, and China, um, and as I said, confronting the limitations of soft power economic policy and a market whose attraction is still significant, but you know, starting to erode and d diminishing uh, on a global basis. So the, the, there's a lot there to think about. And of course, uh, uh, you know, the UK's withdrawal from uh, the EU I think has played a significant part in that, um, like the British or not. They, you know, they they were a significant force in shaping the EU, and I know this in areas like counterterrorism. It was essentially the British that put this together and and and, and got it moving. So I think the British are you know are are being missed. Um, how this all turns out, very, very difficult to say. There are so many moving parts. You know, we've seen countries like France, uh, as you said, loggerheads with the EU and um, um, continuing to pursue very selfish and nationalistic um, objectives. Germany, similarly, um, in terms of its relationship uh, with, with China, and also um, Ukraine, though actually I think Germany, ironically, gets less credit than it deserves for the help it has given Ukraine. You know, the country that's really been given a free pass on this is actually France, that has, which has, comparatively speaking, done relatively little to help the Ukrainians. So we've, you know, we've got a lot of, um, there, there, there are these, you know, inherent um, differences of focus, you know, the southern states of the European Union are far less preoccupied with Ukraine than they are with problems of immigration from North Africa and, you know, instability across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, we've got uh, the Baltic states and Poland, uh, very much on the front foot in terms of confronting Russia, while you know other EU states are, are much less uh, vested um, in, in in such an approach and inclined to be more pragmatic. So it's really very difficult to see a where the European Union comes out and b whether actually the European Union can play a really consequential role in, in, in some of these uh, big geopolitical issues that are taking place. Yeah. Can we just touch briefly upon um, one aspect, which is the relationship uh, based Brexit with the United Kingdom? Mm. Clearly with um, the rapprochement, if we can call it that, of Prime Minister Sunak, mm. Professor von der Leyen recently in the UK over the, the Windsor uh, Protocol, Windsor, Windsor Framework. What is your assessment of to what extent the damage done and the um, enmity created is likely to heal mm. uh, between the UK and the EU, whether it be in trade or any other aspect mm. of the relationship. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, obviously the European Union is, is you know, feeling jilted and is behaving in uh, understandable terms. I think you know, so much depends on uh, UK domestic politics. Uh, we've got um, 
local elections have just taken place in uh, the UK. And as widely expected, the Conservatives, the ruling party, has taken something of a drubbing. And we're now seeing the kind of uh, um, wild, backwards Conservatives getting very hot under the collar and um, you know, um, starting to challenge uh, Sunak's leadership seemingly oblivious to the fact that it was their ineptitude and misbehavior that created the climate that has produced the results with, that we are now seeing. It's a quite remarkable uh, exercise in cognitive dissonance. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that I'm very familiar with, but uh, you know, this, this is a pretty egregious example. And so I think a, a lot will depend on um, what happens after the dust has settled from these local elections and what will happen next year in a general election. My sense is that if we get a Labour government in power, um, their, their instinct will be to at least ensure that relations with the European Union do not get worse than they need to be, and if anything, get better. And I think given the situation I just described a few moments ago, Europe will be necessarily more receptive to that. Um, it, 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 it can't be in their interest you know, to, to exacerbate relationships with a country like uh, the UK, um, give, given where they find themselves. So I'm, I'm moderately optimistic that we will um, probably get into a better place, provided, as I said, you know, the, the, the sort of Liz Trusses and Boris Johnsons of the Conservative Party don't um, wrest control of, of policy back, which I don't think they will. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to, hard to know. Well, what I think is very sad is that the, the, the more thinking elements of all the major UK parties now do recognize that Brexit was a mistake but do not yet have the political courage to say so and take the decisions that would necessarily flow from that. I've got a feeling that uh, you know, hard to say you know, whether and when that will, will come, um, but I think there is some hope that it, it, you know, things may start to move in that direction before too long. Mm -hmm. Okay, some, some, uh, some cause for hope. Uh, let's change gears and move to the Middle East, um, clearly uh, an area of potential flashpoints. Mm. In fact, this week we've had information uh, in the press around the idea that um, Iran is creating a defense pact, as it seems to be called, of Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, to try and coordinate um, uh, attacks against Israel. And therefore, there may be an impending escalation of the conflict. Yeah. We also have the issue, of course, of the GCC countries and Saudi Arabia having tried to have a, uh, their impact with Israel because Iran is a common enemy. Mm. And then more recently, or most recently, we've had the political situation domestically in Israel yeah. flare up because of the internal divisions around the strength of the government versus the judiciary and so on. So what is your assessment of how the region stands given those multitude of... Uh, of conflicting issues. Well, I'll start with the caveat that I'm not the world's greatest Middle Eastern expert. Um, I was necessarily heavily involved in it when I was in government, but since then I've kind of uh, um, paid paid a bit less attention to it. But yes, you're right. Um, there, there, there has been this um, uh, development um, w with Iran 
trying to bring together its proxies um, in what the Israelis are calling a unification of arena. In other words, you know, there, there is now kind of one, you know, sort of uh, Iranian-controlled um, axis um, that you know, runs from Lebanon through Syria um, into um, Iraq, um, and with significant elements in the West Bank and Gaza that are sympathetic um, to the Iranian cause. And clearly, that 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 you know, and, and at the same time, we've seen this rapprochement taking place between the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. Bro you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by China. Actually, China didn't actually do very much. It simply helped them over a finishing line that they were heading towards anyway. Um, and I think, was it this week or last week, there was a meeting of uh, Arab foreign ministers in Amman, uh, countries Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Syria, aimed at bringing Syria back into the Arab League and kind of rehabilitating Assad. And at the moment, that seems to be the current priority. I think it's very difficult to see how this will go. The Sunni-Shia <coughs> split is deep um, and not easily um, you know, brushed over. And I think getting to where they would like to be with Iran is probably going to be more difficult than the Arab states uh, probably imagine. So it, it's hard to say you know, what, what, what the implication of, of, of all of this will be. We are seeing, you know, we have been seeing um, in, in recent years, a clear perception by the Gulf states in particular, but Arab states more generally, that the U US is losing interest in the region, um, no longer you know, um, sees it as a critical uh, strategic issue for the United States because they're, they're producing all the oil and gas they need for themselves. They don't need the Saudis or you know, anyone else. Um, and we've seen the you know the Gulf states and Saudi in particular taking a very conscious uh, and deliberate decision to strike out on their own and develop an autonomous, independent foreign and security policy backed up by significant resources. They've got between them a, you know a one trillion dollar fighting fund to um, implement this this new approach. And so we're seeing a much more, you know, a greater flexibility and agility emerging um, in respect of the foreign policies of countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE. Um, and Israel is caught up in this. So you mentioned that, you know, there, there seemed to be a, a significant rapprochement taking place, talk even of Saudi Arabia um, re-establishing diplomatic relations with Israel. That hasn't happened yet. And for at least the past decade, um, the uh, Gulf states have been heavily reliant upon Israel to provide them with various forms of security, in particular cyber security. So you know the, the the relations there are kind of thickening out. Um, where does this leave Israel? Well, I think it leaves it in a, you know, a rather uncomfortable position at the moment, uh, particularly when you factor in that 
um, various um, Shia groups in Iraq have been given um, Iranian uh, missiles that you know, would be able to strike Israel from Iraqi territory. Um, you know, add to this, you know, um, add to this Hezbollah, add to this Hamas, add to this, you know, um, you know very, various other proxy groups. Uh, collective there, that, that, that is quite a formidable um, set of capabilities. And precisely because it's, it, it, it forms a, a single front, but it's quite, you know, distributed uh, geographically, it's really quite hard for Israel to know where to focus if uh, something does kick off. And, and, you know, I mean, I think the answer is they have to go straight for Iran and, and, and take out Iran. That, that, that would be the logical uh, thing to have to do, not, not uh, easily done. And as you say, the issue is very much complicated by, you know, the, the most horrendously complex uh, domestic politics driven by ben Benjamin Netanyahu's desperate desire to cling on to power and avoid losing his parliamentary immunity. Um, you know, nothing has changed. So, you know, Israel is, is in a very you know, in, intriguing situation. And I think probably, you know, it, it's gone from being very comfortable all of a sudden to being very uncomfortable very quickly. Um, how, how, how that plays out, you know, um, any, you know any, anybody's guess. One other aspect of um, the recent affairs, which is interesting, perhaps, which is the evolution of the relationship between Washington and Riyadh. Mm. You know, it was in the 1930s and 40s that Franklin Roosevelt and Abdulaziz had the infamous uh, conversations that relationship, yes. which has been rock steady for three or four generations, but is now under threat given the, the new views of MBS in Riyadh um, and uh, him looking to the east mm. towards Beijing and not so much always to the west towards Washington. How do you assess the changing uh, view, the relationship between Riyadh and Washington at this juncture? Well, I wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't characterize it as anything like a, a split. It's nowhere near that. Uh, what it is, I think, is, is a weakening of the links that uh, you have described that have been um, the defining feature of security arrangements in that part of the world for quite a few decades now. Um, the U.S. is not the only major player. China is in there economically, um, you know, Russia too, for that matter. And you know the the you know the Saudi Arabia, um, as I mentioned, has decided that it's going to you know, pursue an autonomous um, foreign and defence policy. It's got the resources to do it, um, and it's going to uh, choose its partners depending upon the issues and the circumstances. Um, rather than you know clinging to America through thick and thin for want of any credible alternative, they now do have credible alternatives, and they are going to start you know taking advantage of that. So the United States, I think, you know, if, if the United States wants m uh, more uh, traction over Saudi Arabia, it's going to have to invest more effort than it has uh, done for some while. Yes. Yes. Well, sticking with Washington as we move west, uh, is there anything interesting to say at the current juncture around um, its relationship with Europe, given that clearly it 
playing second fiddle to the primacy yeah. of the Chinese issues. I mean, to the extent that we've now had Brexit for six years, is the special relationship dead? Mm. In fact, did it even really exist only in a yeah. British fantasy? Mm. And to what extent is there is a relationship between Washington and Brussels evolving uh, post the commencement of the Ukraine war and how might that change the future? Yeah. Okay. The the special relationship is a very interesting phenomenon, uh, something that I've lived with um, for all my professional career. Um, people talk about it a lot, don't really understand quite what it is about. Um, at the heart of it is a unique um, level of intelligence cooperation predominantly in the area of signals intelligence that is you know at the heart of the special relationship and the heart of that is the relationship between nsa gchq and you know the the signals intelligence services of canada australia and new zealand um after that then then the rest of the intelligence community though interestingly although you know during my career, my, my relations with my American counterparts uh, varied from the close and cordial to, to, to um, um, bordering on hostile, depending on, uh, depending on circumstances. But the point was, when the chips were down, we always came together, we found each other, and we always looked out for each other. Um, and it's similar. Uh, uh, the, the, the something similar happens in in the defence arena. The, you know, the, these are the areas where the special relationship still does mean something. I think that you know where the United States is concerned. Yes, it is clear that their current priority is in the Indo-Pacific, and I think they've made it pretty clear to NATO and to Western partners in recent years that their, the utility of these arrangements is going to be judged by the United States to some extent, by the extent to which you know, these countries are prepared to take account of and act upon uh, US priorities. Something that you know, a country like the UK and actually France, the intri which of course is a Pacific power in its own right, have been re relatively uh, willing to do. Also, smaller countries like the Netherlands, for example, have been prepared to you know, send um, warships uh, into the South China Sea through the Taiwan Straits um, in support of uh, US um, security objectives. Um, I think that you know, obviously the, there is always going to be strains of isolationism in US politics. There's nothing new here. It's always been that way. Um, but assuming that the United States does not go full um, isolationist, and I don't see that as a very imminent reality. I think that the United States will continue to see the security of Europe as integral to its own interests and values, and will therefore be prepared to continue to invest in that, subject to evidence that these countries will um, be willing to invest more in their own defense capabilities, do more to help themselves, and be ready to help America in other theaters when the requirement arises. So I think that's probably where we are with that. Beyond that, um, well, you know, international relationships are characterized by issues of um, calculations of self-interest and um, that's always been the way. I remember 
years ago, back in the day when foreign office um, and when uh, foreign office British ambassadors used to write valedictory dispatches at the end of their tours, um, you know, the, the, these were wonderfully uh, indiscreet publications, and of course, that's why they had to be stopped in an er in, in an era of ever greater transparency and an inability to keep secrets. But one I read from from, from uh, the, the British ambassador in Washington saying, you know. At any given moment, my embassy is involved in six or seven major rows with the United States government. That was back in the 1970s. Not much has changed. No, exactly. Well, Dan, we've done a world tour from east to west. Let's end with um, landing in New York and looking at the United Nations. Um, and given the massively big changes we've seen in geopolitics even in recent years, the question does arise to what extent it's a relic mm -hmm. um, of the post-World War II era, whether it um, should be reformed, can it be reformed, mm -hmm. and what role does the Global South play, because it's been pretty absent until now, yes. how do you assess the future of the United Nations and that whole architecture? Yeah, well, that's very interesting, and that takes us back to China, because one of uh, Xi Jinping's priority objectives is to achieve a redesign of global governance that uh, more greatly reflects China's interests and preferences. And of course, the, the, there's a certain element of disingenuousness in all of this. You know, China's argument is that uh, um, they and a lot of other countries weren't um, in the room when the current arrangements were established. Well, that is complete nonsense because, of course, China was in the room, uh, just not the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, China was given a seat at the top table uh, with a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. And China did actually play quite a significant role um, in a number of areas relating to the establishment of the UN, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was a, you know, very much the work of a, of a then Chinese diplomat. So you know, there, there, there is, as I say, a certain amount of disingenuousness in, in, in China's position. You know, what they mean is the Chinese Communist Party wasn't in charge and therefore the whole thing is illegitimate. Um, and this, of course, is um, an argument that does carry conviction with large swathes of the global south, you know, countries that didn't exist when this um, dispensation was created and which undoubtedly did entrench the interests of a number of then major Western powers, some of which are no longer obviously as powerful as, as they once were. Um, so in that sense, um, a case for a review of, of the current arrangements does have some justification, well, quite significant justification. But how do you get from here to there? You know, it was hard enough when it was essentially 20 or 30 countries that had to reach agreement on what the arrangements should be. We've now got 192. Um, good luck with getting uh, a consensus from that lot. I suppose particularly with the big five having to give up some of their influence. Well, exactly. Yes, indeed. I mean, we, we used to discuss this you know, when I was in government and saying, you know, well, you know, should there be a European seat um, instead of the you know, Franco-British one? And of course, you know, the French bridled, we bridled, you know, no way. You know, you know, it, it was a, you know, a, a game of diplomatic chicken. You know, I'll go if you go first. And, 
uh, of course, nobody was going to relinquish the advantages of incumbency that uh, that you know that easily. So I'm not sure how we do get from here to there. But certainly, if you look at uh, China's discourse. Um, they argue that a revised United Nations should be at the heart of their model of global governance, um, but with um, equality of status between all, all countries concerned, which of course is meaningless and in practice means that China, as the biggest country, gets to call the shots. I can't see a lot of, you know, I can't see a country like the United States readily acquiescing in such. Um, arrangements. So I've got a feeling that the United Nations will for some while continue to muddle along as you know the worst available option apart from all the others that uh, we might uh, wish to consider. It's not a very uh, inspiring prospect, but I think that's the most realistic we're going to get. It sounds rather as though, like many of these things, there's going to have to be a crisis for it to then be reformed, like the, uh, the crisis that occurred uh, at the time of its um, initiation all those decades ago. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. You know, no, no, nothing. You know, we need a catalyst that powerful to, to um, um, incentivize change of that magnitude. Well, Nigel, that's quite a journey around uh, the global issues. All of them are impactful and, and important, as you say. So many of them are somewhat intractable with great uncertainty surrounding them. But thank you very much for uh, that tour of all these issues. My pleasure. Um, I hope you found that useful. And Abby, I shall pass back to you. Yes, thank you, uh, Nigel and Mark, for this absolutely fascinating discussion. We live in extraordinary times, that's for sure, with uh, a complex geopolitical landscape and uh, the agendas of the world's major powers and fairly stark conflicts with no clear resolution in sight. I can't say I feel particularly comforted by the discussion, but you've certainly given us a lot to think about as these issues continue to develop. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. I hope you found this discussion as timely and enlightening as I have. And we look forward to you joining us for our next episode of Macro Matters. Bye.